Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Andrew McKeown, a practicing barrister and case reporter, Irish Legal News. And on behalf of Irish Legal News, I'd like to welcome you all to uh, today's event. This is our very first webinar, and uh, we look forward to facilitating, facilitating this discussion about access to justice under the new government. So I'll call on uh, each of our uh, guests in turn um, to say a few words, uh, some remarks, uh, and then there'll be a Q&A at the, the end of the session. Uh, but you'll all be able throughout the session to uh, type in your questions, which, which can be asked then at the end. So uh, our, our first guest that I'd like to invite to speak is uh, Eilish Barry. She's the Chief Executive of uh, FLAC, the Free Legal Advice Centres. And prior to joining FLAC, she practiced as a barrister specialising in all aspects of employment law, uh, anti-discrimination and equality. So I'd like to invite Eilish uh, to speak first. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I want to congratulate and thank Irish Legal News for having access to justice as the theme of their first webinar. In FLAC's experience, it's incredibly difficult to get access to justice onto, a, onto any agenda, and it's even harder to get uh, real change in the area. And I hope that the great interest which is shown in this uh, webinar is is an indication of of the desire for for real change so so thanks and congratulations to uh, irish irish legal news um, the phrase access to justice is open to many interpretations. In FLAC's view, it encompasses a number of things. First of all, legal information, legal advocacy, early legal advice, legal aid or representation. But it encompasses more than that. It also encompasses access to the courts, where procedural barriers and formalistic rules uh, can, can constitute real barriers. And I've no doubt that Wendy will be talking about the practice direction into immigration <laughs> and I just want to add that Flack wrote to the former president of the High Court and also the, the Superior Court Rules Committee to express our concern at the uh, inordinate barriers that were being put on the shoulders of the lawyers and the clients in, in immigration cases. I also just, by the way, want to congratulate Wendy on her great victory for the Chilean student. It was, it was a gobsmacking case when you read about it, so uh, very, very well done. Um, okay, I think it's worth just remembering briefly why access to justice is so important. To FLAC, it's an essential part of democracy. There's no point in enacting laws or introducing beneficial provisions if people don't know about them or if they do know about them that they can't enforce them. We very recently in FLAC launched a benefit take-up campaign in relation to the rent subsidy. During COVID-19, the criteria for rent subsidy were, were broadened, uh, but there was actually very little uh, um, there was very little uh, news about it and as a result very few people um, accessed it or applied for it to, to, to in, in very urgent situations. So we've launched a campaign to try and make people aware of it and to try and get people to apply for it and, and look for arrears. Access to justice is also about social inclusion. In FLAC, we take on a small number of cases with the particular emphasis on vulnerable and uh, disadvantaged groups and individuals. And we run a clinic for the Roma community. And what is very clear to us is that the greater the need there is, the greater the number of justiciable issues that you'll encounter with one particular client and their family uh, in areas like access to emergency housing or getting on the housing 
waiting list or getting emergency payments or issues like debt or rent evictions or whatever. And solving one problem can have an almost disproportionate beneficial impact on other areas. We also believe that access to justice improves social inclusion and there's been recent research in Scotland that shows that access to justice improves health outcomes, which isn't really surprising when you think of the levels of stress uh, your clients are under. In other jurisdictions, access to justice is given the same prominence as access to health and access to, to education. And we in FLAC have argued for it to be given the same equivalent prominence in all policy. We want it stitched into all uh, national action plans and we would have liked it to have been stitched into the programme for government, but it isn't there explicitly. So prior to the general election, we ran a right to justice election campaign where we were asking candidates to sign, uh, to sign to a, a pledge which would commit them to look for a root and branch review of the legal aid system if they were elected and also to accept that a properly functioning and accessible court system is a core part of access to justice. Now a number of the candidates, a good number of the candidates signed up to that. Now I have no doubt that Keith, Keith will be talking about the need for a properly functioning uh, family court system and with Keith and along with an, a number of other NGOs and the Bar Council, we took part in the courting disaster campaign, arguing for the properly family courts, uh, family a properly functioning family court to be uh, built in Hammond Lane. And we're really pleased at the very recent news that this is now going ahead. But obviously, this is just Dublin. That needs to be mirrored all around the country. And I think the commitment in the programme for government in relation to court form has to extend beyond Dublin. So I think it's worth just reminding ourselves, why do we want a review of the legal aid system? Why is it so important? Essentially, the system we have now is, this, is the interim system that was recommended by Pringle and Flack over 40 years ago, when Ireland was taken to the European Court of Human Rights by Josie Airy and found to be in breach of her rights under the Convention by failing to provide her uh, with legal aid. So effectively, we still have that interim system. We've never had a comprehensive scheme. And that's why we're arguing for it to be changed 40 years on. Legal aid isn't free, despite a really narrow means test. You have to pay what may be a pretty hefty financial contribution. The Legal Aid Board has no leeway if you don't meet the very strict means test, no matter how complex your case may be. There are very significant delays in some law centres, up to six months or up to nine months. And frankly, we in flat dread what's going to happen post-COVID. We anticipate that the, that the delays will be greatly increased. There's also very significant exceptions. Again, no matter how difficult or complex your issue is, you won't get legal aid for a claim before the Workplace Relations Commission, either in, 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 under the Equal Status Act or in any type of employment case. Again, no matter how little resources you have, no matter how little capacity you may feel you have, no matter how sensitive the issue is, and no matter how big the resources your potential opponent may have. For example, you won't get legal aid in a claim of sexual harassment against your employer. You won't get legal aid in a claim in relation to a child with disabilities looking for reasonable accommodation um, for a school. There's also a perception that legal aid isn't available in housing cases and for the most part 
the Legal Aid Board doesn't provide representation in housing cases, but it's our understanding that people can and should be able to get legal aid from uh, in, in terms of housing cases, but, but it doesn't really happen at the moment. And there's no legal aid for social welfare appeals, even though they may involve complex EU points and people may be facing uh, destitution if they don't succeed in their appeal. Um, we've been calling for a root branch review for some time and we're not alone. The Bar Council have joined uh, that call, the Law Society have joined uh, that call and the Joint the Rockless, uh, Committee on Justice and Equality when it considered uh, its review of the family law system. It also made that recommendation um, last year and the Chief Justice had made numerous calls for broader and deeper legal aid and the UN Human Rights uh, Committee when it heard when it was monitoring Ireland's compliance with the third convention also made recommendations about extending legal aid for social welfare and cases before the WRC. With the COVID crisis, FLAC has experienced an unprecedented level of queries to our phone line. Now, we anticipated that they would occur in family law, but for the first time at the end of May, uh, employment queries ex exceeded family law queries to the phone line. And since lockdown, we've had a huge number of, of people contacting us. We know from the last recession that people will be losing their jobs and that on foot of losing their jobs, inevitably sometime later, there will be debt problems, there will be problems with rent arrears, there will be problems with mortgage arrears, there will be problems with evictions and there will be problems uh, with repossessions. And it's not clear how many of these issues the Legal Aid Board um, will be able to deal with. And we're worried about what happens when the pandemic payment stops, when the payment break stops, when the pro prohibition on rent increases and evictions stop. We had a reasonably positive response to our general election pledge, but I suppose we're somewhat disappointed in the programme for government that has emerged. The programme for government is quite general and not non-specific and we are, while we're pleased with some of the measures, it doesn't contain an explicit commitment to reviewing civil legal aid, though there is still room under the programme for such a review to take place. We broadly welcome many of the policy initiatives, um, in particular the, anti the, the recognition um, for the need for anti-poverty measures um, and the, the recognition that there are structural inequalities which um, leave those who are poor at highest risk. We also welcome the commitment to a, a new social contract, but again we would argue that access to legal aid and access to justice is fundamental to such a, a new social contract. We're also concerned about the system of supplementary welfare allowance. It was set up to provide a safety net beyond which people wouldn't fall through. But again, in FLAC, uh, in FLAC, from FLAC's clientele, we regularly see people who have no access to any form of so social welfare. And, and again, we believe that a safety net is a key part of the social contract and hope that it will be developed um, with the new government and as part of the new um, uh, social contract. We also welcome the end the, to the inhumane system of direct provision and, and I suspect your other speakers will be speaking about that too. But we believe that you know close attention has to be paid to what, what is replaced and the devil will be in the detail. What will people's entitlement be to social welfare? What will be their entitlement to work? Will they be able to live in their own homes? Um, 
of what is the position in terms of who's providing uh, for the provision for people in, in such circumstances and will the application process uh, be speeded up. Um, there's no particular reference to employment rights in the programme for government and it has been FLAC's very recent experience that this is an area that needs to be looked at. The whole infrastructure around employment rights needs to be looked at. There's a whole lot of queries around people being asked who are around the, the system in terms of layoffs and whether people are genuinely been made off, laid off and will they be made redundant. There's queries around the rights of people who do not want to go back to work, who feel that their health and safety will not be properly catered for, or people who can't go back to work because there hasn't been sufficient child minding uh, put in place. But what is very clear is the need for information, advocacy and legal aid in the whole area of employment law. We also welcome the commitment to making provision for people in debt, but the reality is FLAC has been making recommendations in this regard since the, since the last recession, which haven't been implemented. And it's really critical that the whole body of recommendations that are there in terms of reform of the personal insolvency legislation are now implemented. We will have a whole new cohort of people coming down the road who will be seriously in debt. At the moment, there's over 26,000 people from the last recession who are still in long-term mortgage arrears. So they're going to be met by a new cohort of people in debt, unfortunately. And we believe that there's a real need for a strong consumer voice. And I suppose we question whether that lies properly with the central bank, given its other roles in terms of protecting the economy. And we're also calling for um, a proper mortgage to rent scheme and a reinstatement of the mortgage in interest subsidy. And we believe that it's time now to look at a new code of conduct which would deal with old arrears, uh, new arrears and people who have unsecured debts such as people who have very substantial uh, rent arrears. Um, in terms of equality in relation to travellers, we very much welcome the provisions in relation to accommodation, but it's absolutely vital that the recommendations of the Traveller Accommodation Expert Review um, are, be, are, are implemented. While we also welcome the commitment in terms of hate crime, again, the devil, the devil will be in the detail. And we've also argued all along that there needs to be a complementary system of remedies for hate speech. Because at the moment, there, there, is no, there is no proper remedy for hate speech. And that should happen in tandem with the overdue review of the, of the incitement to hatred legislation. And we're also calling for, and we see this from um, the cases that come to us from the Roma community and the traveller community, for there to be a remedy for racial profiling. At the moment, there isn't a proper civil remedy uh, for racial profiling. And again, the equality legislation needs to be looked at to ensure that the prohibition of discrimination properly br brings within its remit uh, the functions of the guards and the immigration services. So while we welcome the provisions that the broad provisions in terms of equality and social inclusion and, um, and other such matters, we do believe that the devil is in the detail and we look forward to working for uh, a modern uh, inclusive society. Thank you. Thanks very much, Eilish. Our next guest is Jim McGowan, who is an experienced criminal barrister and the outgoing uh, chair of ICBA, the Irish Criminal Bar Association, which is a representative body for all barristers who practice in the criminal courts. 
Thanks, Andrew. And thanks to Connor and Andrew for extending the invitation and to featuring uh, criminal law. Oftentimes we don't find ourselves in the same room as uh, Keith, Wendy and Ailish, but we have many shared issues that hopefully we can borrow from each other. Um, there are a number of issues that I'm sure I could rant and rave about and hopefully I'll put some structure on my rantings this afternoon. Um, the first issue that arises time and time again when it comes to access to justice for criminal matters really arises before matters ever come to court. And by that I mean in the pre-trial stage, in the investigation stage, and really in the um, general detention of individuals and the retention of evidence at the very early stages. By the time it comes to court, there is an element of uh, batting out fires, trying to fix situations that may have already arisen. And to that end, when one looks at the criminal justice system, I don't think you can examine the criminal courts or criminal lawyers without also shining a light on Angarda Siakona and the resources or lack thereof that they have. Um, to start with that kind of vein, one of the disappointing features I think Ailish already referred to was the programme for government that was produced not too long ago. And when one looks at the reform for courts, um, there is little to no mention of the criminal courts or the criminal trial process at all. In fact, the height of their intention is to review whether or not a public defender system should be made available. And I'll come to how disastrous that would be in due course. But there are significant recommendations made in respect of Angarda Siakona and with the greatest of respect to the intentions of the drafters of the programme for government, um, they are largely, um, I'm trying to say this quite respectfully, um, useless or pointless. Um, they adopt a number of features that have been commended in the policing authorities reports and they are um, excellent in theory. However, that report has been published for some time and the most important um, recommendation in my view is in effect that the police get back to policing business rather than the administrative tasks that they're often um, faced with. The most uh, fundamental example of this that I can give you relates to the interview and detention of a suspect where a guard and a colleague will attend the interview. One will put questions to the suspect in question and the other will commit every answer and every question to writing, which ultimately stalls the process, interrupts the flow of the interrogation or the investigation, and moreover, extends detention periods for suspects longer than are necessary. With the benefit of the electronic recording regulations and other recording mechanisms that are available, that can very easily be done away with. And indeed, a transcript of the interview can be given and can be procured by support staff that should be there to assist on Garda Siakona. So that is one of the most draconian measures that I can think of that we are still stuck in the dark ages with. And those type of practical matters, um, in my mind, haven't been properly addressed um, by the programme for government. There are grand promises that are contained within. However, I think it's a more root and branch approach that needs to be taken um, with regard to Angarda Siakona reform. Because then when it comes to court and disclosure of information and disclosure of evidence is given, um, issues arise in how that evidence was procured and how it was preserved. 
And oftentimes, and we've seen from our partners and our neighbouring jurisdiction in the United Kingdom, the difficulties they've had with disclosure um, and indeed how their criminal trial process grinded to a halt and rape trials and white collar crimes in difficult cases collapsed as a result. The second rant in my criminal trial process and access to justice arises from this disclosure issue. Um, in response to the difficulties in England and on foot of the recommendations in a Law Reform Commission report in 2014, the government attempted to put its mind to the issue of disclosure, to codify it, to put the obligations on statutory footing. Unfortunately, what we received was a single section amending the disclosure of counselling records in respect of sexual offences alone. And rather than seeking to overhaul or indeed codify the general disclosure obligations that um, are warranted and that are necessary, both for the guards to understand um, the remit of their powers and their obligations, and then for the prosecution and defence to be in a position to deal with the disclosure at trial, um, we were met with this single section. If any of you have had the opportunity to look at Section 19A um, applications, and this is 19A of the Criminal Evidence Act 1992, um, many of you may feel that it is somewhat lacklustre um, and it is poorly drafted in the, um, in the extreme. For example, and just to give you some highlights as to the frailties of this section, um, it relates to sexual offence proceedings, but only sexual offence proceedings that come before the circuit court or the central criminal court. And by definition, that automatically excludes either the special criminal court, but more importantly, the district court, where we know more serious offences are coming before those courts, they're being dealt with, and indeed it appears that a judge cannot order, pursuant to Section 19A, any counselling records. And it would seem to be um, a, somewhat of a silly distinction to make. Um, it doesn't appear to serve any purpose save to actually um, avoid disclosure obligations, and I think that that will obviously be ripe for challenge when a factual um, scenario meets that case. Moreover, there are some, um, some positives that have arisen from 19A. One is that complainants in the, in the instant case will get representation and they, similar to the cross-examination of complainants in a criminal trial relating to their previous sexual history, will be afforded a legal aid certificate to cover counsel and a solicitor and the law centres generally um, organise that. And that is a positive. That means that there's representation for the non-traditional parties in a criminal trial where we ordinarily think the prosecutors and defenders and the judge and jury, that now complainants are starting to be more recognized. And indeed there is precedence there for representation for complainants. So that is something that is a positive and seems to um, have a degree of um, spotlight and indeed paving the way so that complainants may in the future gain further representation for other matters as well, we would hope. I think like Ailish has already referred to and I've no doubt my colleagues will as well, the COVID-19 crisis um, certainly 
brought certain matters to the fore for us. And as many of you will know, the criminal trial process largely grinded to a halt quite suddenly, where ongoing trials um, that had impaneled juries, they continued to a conclusion, but nothing further was done. And clearly that um, caused a level of stress for defendants who were in custody, where their trials couldn't um, continue. And the courts have endeavoured to address this with priority hearing dates, um, setting dates in September outside of the traditional legal terms. And I have to say the uptake by practitioners has been overwhelmingly positive, where everyone is anxious um, to get back to work, but more, more importantly, I suppose, to facilitate that access to the courts for defendants and victims alike. But one thing that uh, became glaringly obvious to all of us was the inadequacy of our facilities. That there were matters that were dealt with by way of video link, such as high court bail applications and certain sentence matters and mention matters. And unfortunately, from time to time, technology failed us. Like everyone, the pandemic effectively came out of nowhere and we hadn't properly prepared for it. But the prison services um, are to be commended for their role in facilitating the online consultations, the video link consultations, and then the video link court appearances. However, a lot has to be said for the fact that um, more provisions like that ought to be made available. So prison visits remotely, either for practitioners or indeed for family members of individuals in custody. And that is something that falls, in my view, within access to justice in the grander sense of things. And moreover, the disposal of certain matters by way of video link or remote hearing um, where possible and where um, where people are in a position not to clog up court lists or court time. I understand that there was a significant media coverage at one point where there was um, confusion as to whether or not barristers in the Bar Council and ICBA were clamouring for virtual trials or juries to be dispensed of, and that simply isn't the case. I think you'll struggle to find a criminal practitioner, either a solicitor or a barrister, who would ever forego the adversarial system with your jury in court, where that jury um, is in a position to hear the evidence in real time and, more importantly, gauge the behaviour and the overall demeanour of a witness or the other players in court. So that um, is something that is at the far realm of any prospect or any um, proposal from the criminal bar. And we are looking forward to getting back to our traditional trials as soon as possible. The next uh, bugbear of mine when it comes to access to justice is something that has um, come to the fore in recent years about the legal profession itself and whether or not there is a necessity to have an independent referral bar or whether or not, um, as the LSRA suggests, we can become a unified um, profession. I won't uh, dream to speak for my family law colleagues on the call or indeed um, my other colleagues that are in civil practice, but I can certainly say without any fear or favour that that would be a deplorable decision in my view if we were to unify the professions, particularly from the aspect of a criminal trial. Um, the criminal trial, as many of you know, has so many layers and levels and intricacies to it that barristers and solicitors play very distinct and important roles um, in the criminal trial process. 
But speaking as a barrister and as a member of that independent referral bar, where one is able to prosecute and defend um, and without having to pledge uh, oneself to either side, I think that that can only result in a fairer, more well-round um, prosecution or defence and ultimately a fairer trial. The public defender system um, has been mooted and floated over the past decade or so from time to time. And I think one needs only look at the American system and um, the public defender system in particular of how underfunded it is, how overburdened it is, and indeed how the lack of expertise in those areas has caused a significant amount of miscarriages of justice. And all things being equal, I believe that justice is better served when the accused and indeed when the complainants and the prosecution more generally are represented with a full legal team, with a full expansion of skills um, of solicitors and barristers. So with that, uh, with that little plug in mind, I'll leave off my gripe about um, the LSRA attempting to abolish us and unify us as solicitors. Um, there is a number of matters that the government, uh, that the government, excuse me, has failed to deliver upon. Certain matters that they shall deliver upon, and one of the most interesting, and one that I see becoming uh, a particular issue as criminal trials progress and as more knowledge about this um, is realised, is an EU directive that is one of three effectively brought in to protect um, the rights of individuals in criminal proceedings. And this directive was passed in 2012 and it's the right to information in criminal proceedings. And many of you may be aware of the right to interpretation and translation in, crim in criminal proceedings and the right of access to a lawyer. Um, it is my view and indeed a view shared by many colleagues that this directive has direct effect. And what this directive serves to do is quite remarkable. In essence, it translates that individuals who are suspects ought to be informed of their status as suspects even prior to arrest and that a degree of information ought to be communicated to them. But moreover, when one is ultimately apprehended and arrested in the Garda station, there are significant provisions contained within the directive that one shall have access to the case file. Now, many solicitors will speak to you and tell you that that simply is not the case in our jurisdiction, that ordinarily solicitors attend at the Garda station and if their client is being interviewed, they're told in very bold terms the scope of the charge or the allegation, but they rarely, if ever, receive any documentation or substantive information. Indeed, much of what they learn is uh, throughout the interview itself and the questions that the guards, um, the guards ask. But Article 7 of that directive grants the suspect or the accused full, unrestricted and free access to all material evidence in the possession of the competent authorities. Now that, in its term, would include documents, photographs and audio and video recordings such as CCTV. So in essence, if we gave proper weight to the directive, which is in, as far as I'm concerned and my colleagues with direct effect, um, one would be better armed with knowing 
largely the case against you and the evidence against you, a solicitor would be better able to advise the individual if they have been arrested. And ultimately, an awful lot more would be available to the defendant or I should say the suspect or arrested person at that point in time. Um, so that is something that will significantly impact the general theme of access to justice and more, I suppose, condensed from my point of view, access to justice in the criminal system. And um, it is a provision that's there. The directive is in. Um, obviously, member states are given a deference a degree of uh, appreciation as to how they shall transpose that and we are waiting on guidelines or indeed any um, purported statute that would seek to um, put that in and enact it in Ireland and um, but that awaits to be seen but it is a significant failing on the government and it is one that um, has been effective for um, a number of years, by my calculation, it's the 2nd of June 2014, uh, which was when member states were to bring into force laws and regulations to comply with the directive. So it remains to be seen. Certainly, I can see many challenges arising in the near future in respect of serious crimes, things like white collar crime, gangland crime, they seem to be primed for challenge um, in this regard. So Andrew, I'm sure I've prattled on uh, long enough and as much as my intention was to put structure on my rantings, um, I'm not sure I've accomplished that with any great, um, with any great success. However, um, thanks so much and I'll answer any questions in due course. Great, thanks very much, Jane. Uh, with that, I'd just like to uh, remind all attendees that they can submit uh, questions using the Q&A button, which I can put to the uh, panelists at the end. Our next guest is Keith Walsh, who is a solicitor and mediator who heads up Keith Walsh Solicitors, which is an award-winning family law firm in Dublin, and he is a past chairman of the Law Society's Child and Family Law Committee. Thanks, Keith. Uh, thanks very much, Andrew. Um, uh, it's not easy to follow the previous two speakers, and I suppose I'm just going to deal with family law and access to justice problems, uh, some of which are, are common to the previous speakers uh, and their areas as well. Um, I suppose I might just first of all look at the issues that are peculiar to COVID-19 um, and some of them are exclusive to COVID-19 problems and some actually um, are, are not exclusive to it. Um, I suppose one of the highlights of access to justice or difficulties with access to justice that arose during COVID was people's physical proximity uh, to the courts and the importance of local justice and local courthouses. Um, that's particularly so um, in the district court, which deals almost exclusively with domestic violence cases. Um, there was an article in yesterday's uh, Irish Independent by Shane Phelan, which quoted uh, statistics from the court service, and they're the only statistics that I've seen in relation to uh, a comparative figures between this year's uh, domestic violence figures from the beginning of May to the beginning of July and last year. So we can see very clearly the influence of COVID-19 um, and the lockdown on them. And what it showed is that uh, there's been a marked reduction in the application for some types of domestic violence uh, relief, namely uh, full safety order and full barring order, whereas there seems to be a big increase in temporary applications. But overall, the overall numbers of applications are down during COVID. And um, I suppose that can be explained in my view um, for a number of reasons. One, um, the general time when domestic violence applications are at their height 
um, is not during Christmas when perhaps the the uh, violence is being perpetrated, but after Christmas when the children are back to school. And uh, again, um, as most domestic violence, it seems to be perpetrated in households uh, with children, not exclusively, but, but primarily uh, in, in a lot of cases, um, having children in the house is, is a big problem. And during lockdown, um, you couldn't get a child minder. It was quite difficult to get somebody in at all during most of the lockdown. So that may be one reason. So childcare may also uh, be, be an access uh, issue in terms of family law, um, but proximity to the courts, it wasn't that easy to travel on, on public transport. Um, that applies in COVID and outside COVID. Um, our, in, for the entire Dublin metropolitan area, uh, the principal district court uh, for childcare is Dolphin House, which is located in the centre of Dublin. Most buses can get into Dublin, but it, it can be quite a journey from the suburbs. And I, I wouldn't like to underestimate um, the factor of uh, proximity from the courthouses. So uh, whatever, however true that is in Dublin, it's doubly true outside Dublin, where there isn't any kind of level of um, public transport infrastructure available. So there, so these are things that I hadn't considered myself previously in terms of access to justice. I would have thought more in terms of resources, more in terms of legal aid, uh, but there are things that have been thrown up by um, by COVID. Another barrier to people in family law um, uh, accessing the courts, whether for domestic violence or other matters, were, was their perception of what the law was in relation to travel. That also affected how they implemented uh, their rights or they sought their rights. Uh, it was only a number of weeks into the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, that the issue of access was clarified uh, by the Minister for Justice, uh, by the President of the District Court, by the Family Lawyers Association and by the Law Society. Um, and they were very welcome clarifications when they came. Um, but it, it also was enshrined in the legislation or the, the statutory instruments, which said that travel uh, for access was permitted. But even though that was publicized, and even though it was the law, quite a number of people still didn't realize uh, that, um, that they were entitled to travel. Um, in my experience, a lot of those people were, were people who may be slightly vulnerable and, and didn't uh, realize or were dependent on um, other bodies which weren't in a position to advise them uh, in relation to their right to travel during uh, the lockdown. And I, I think um, access to good verifiable information is, is obviously a, a huge part of access to justice uh, and also people's perception because there was quite a disconnect as people are aware between what the government was actually saying and what the law was in relation to travel and freedom and restrictions on travel. So I suppose COVID was the greatest restriction in my lifetime on uh, freedom of movement. And uh, quite a number of people were reluctant to leave the house or, or to get involved in travel, even though had they read the legislation, they would have realized they could have traveled. But again, even most lawyers didn't read the legislation. So it, it's very important that the soft information is there as well as the, the hard information. I suppose other issues in terms of access to justice for family law clients um, is the people being trapped in houses uh, where, the, where they can't, uh, there's no means of, of, of accessing services or uh, communications were, were a lot more difficult uh, during the lockdown. Uh, in terms of resources, um, the legal aid system is going to come under increasing pressure. Um, it operates a free system for um, 
uh, sorry, a, a system where the, there was a contribution to domestic violence uh, legal aid, but um, it, it's much easier to get legal aid for domestic violence related cases. However, access and maintenance cases suffered. And as it was access to justice, again, was emphasized by during COVID by the fact that priority was put on certain types of cases and um, essentially access to justice in relation to other types of family law cases was uh, denied or suspended for the period of, of COVID. And again, that's a microcosm of what happens in the general uh, uh, justice system. It's, it's not formally stated that some cases are more important than others, but the way they're listed and the way the courts are treated and the length of time you wait for cases uh, or for legal aid determines uh, what the system thinks of you. And again, family law is regarded as very much the poor sister in that, uh, in that there's a lack of resources, there's a lack of funding for legal aid, and uh, there isn't a great priority put on, on quite a number of cases. But during COVID, it became very obvious that the only cases that were going to get heard were the extremely acute ones, uh, which were the applications for domestic violence. Um, and um, cases apart from that, such as breach of maintenance, uh, breach of access, uh, were really put to the second tier until much further on into the COVID. Now, the president of the district court addressed breaches of access and they became urgent matters in the district court only, but not in other courts. And um, breaches of maintenance also were upgraded uh, much later on in, in, in COVID-19. But for the, the majority of the duration of the lockdown, it was difficult to get into court for those. And again, you could only get into court once uh, these became urgent, if you could prove they were urgent. So there was a further barrier during COVID-19 to that. Um, in terms of uh, virtual uh, justice and whether that uh, resolves or solves uh, access to justice issues, um, I suppose the first point to note is that it's not appropriate for every case, but it is appropriate for some cases, particularly where there's no witness and there's no need for cross-examination. And if um, virtual courts can alleviate some of the um, the cues for cases, um, if they can take some of the pressure off and they genuinely move matters on when they can't be done otherwise, then, then it's to be welcomed. But it, it certainly in, in, in where cross-examination is required, it's very difficult uh, to have faith in, in, in virtual courts. And again, because resources are so uh, scarce, particularly in family law cases, it's very difficult to see how there is an actual saving to the court service and to the courts, because that the, the court system is based around the importance of uh, the judiciary and the court service rather than the needs of the litigants. So it, it's very much, and that's become very evident uh, from the uh, the COVID-19 that, that that is is the first part. I mean, obviously the court service mandate is, is to serve the litigant as well, and that is a, a, a significant factor, but it is not the primary factor. And if you read the, um, the mission statement of, of, of the court service, you very quickly understand wh where they're coming from. Um, another uh, barrier, as I would see it, to access to justice, particularly in family law matters, is the complexity or the lack of clear legislation, uh, particularly in relation to uh, uh, as basic an act as the Guardianship of Infants Act 1964. It's very difficult to establish who is a parent. Uh, it, it, it's, it's difficult to uh, establish precisely what automatic guardianship means. Uh, it, it's quite difficult to understand who, who may apply to be a guardian. Uh, there are loads of different types of access, which are all welcome changes, 
and innovations in many ways, but but they're quite difficult to decipher even for, for solicitors or barristers or lawyers, and sometimes even for judges. So I think certainly I would say the 1964 Guardianship of Infants Act um, as revised, and it can only be read uh, as a revised statute in the Law Reform Commission's website. You can't read it in its basic form because it's been amended so much. The 2015 um, uh, Family Law Children Act uh, has changed it uh, almost beyond recognition, but again, reading the 2015 Act won't assist you in deciphering the 1964 Act because you have to literally put the, all the um, uh, the amendments into it. Uh, so it, it's very difficult to understand some of the family law legislation, and particularly the Guardianship of Infants Act. Um, that is a barrier to uh, understanding um, what rights you may have and how you would um, enforce them. And, and that, that is a problem. Uh, another problem uh, is the cohabitation legislation, which was brought into effect on the 1st of January 2011. Most people are completely unaware that that legislation is in place and that they may qualify as a, a cohabitant and they may have redress against the other cohabitants. So again, that I think public information, I think Eilish touched on this, that there's no point having laws that nobody knows about because they won't be enforced and lawyers can't enforce these laws. The leading cohabitation case came about uh, where the applicant wasn't aware that he was a cohabitant but was in a solicitor's office and was told he was a cohabitant because he had an entirely different problem uh, created by the uh, by by the parties um, in, in the, the cohabitation case and, and it was pure luck. So um, that those types of cases and the complexity of the legislation um, shows us that really we're not doing a good job. Um, I also think the in-camera rule is a barrier to access to justice because people don't realise what's going on behind the closed doors. Uh, family law isn't really uh, reported that much on um, in, in the courts. It's not that people would have to be um, named or identified, but certainly the, there could be more. Uh, certainly the, the, the Child Care Reporting Project and Carl Kutra has done fantastic work in that, in that area, but we need, I suppose, more work by lawyers and by academics to explain precisely what happens in the courts and also how, how people's lives are changed for the better by the, the results that they get in the courts. And uh, finally, I was just going to talk about the lack of resources and the, the good news that we received, if, it, if indeed it is good news, that there is funding allocated for the new family law complex in Dublin in Hammond Lane. Uh, currently, anyone doing childcare in the Bridewell, which is a, a 19th century uh, criminal court uh, complex, I suppose, the three courts there, uh, it, it's really... Uh, it's Dickensian is the best way to describe it. The acoustics are all wrong. It's not an appropriate place to have children. That is going to be replaced with a site which is just off Church Street on Hammond Lane. Um, allegedly, the, the money has been found now for it and it will be built. I didn't think it would be built in my lifetime. I really hope it is built. I think it would be fantastic and I think we need more ADR and collaborative uh, law and um, we need... Um, certainly a lot of other eyes on family law and to open it up much more. Um, the last thing I'm going to say is just that there's a family courts bill which is has been in justice for a number of years. Apparently it is also going to get published in the next number of weeks or months and that's going to create a special uh, family law division. But one of the downsides of it, which is I suppose why I'm, I'm concerned about local justice, is it's going to consolidate particularly outside Dublin uh, the various courts so that you have specialist family courts which are to be welcomed 
but it does mean that people will have to travel very large distances to access those courts. And that may be okay in, in the, the divorce separation type cases, but in your more acute type need case, uh, like domestic violence, like access, your more district court uh, cases, I just would have concerns about uh, whether that would be appropriate for all family laws. So I think there's going to be a lot of change to come. I, I hope the it results in, in an increased access to justice and um, I, I, I look forward to, to answering any questions. So thank you very much. Thank you, Keith. Uh, our final guest then is Wendy Lyon, who is an immigration and human rights solicitor, and she's a founding partner of Abbey Law, which is a boutique human rights law firm in Dublin. I, I did unfortunately lose um, part of Eilish's talk, so I hope I'm not going to be covering anything that she already covered. Um, I, I did. I, I was able to to hear her uh, congratulate me on the on the Chilean student case. Thank you very much, Eilish, and that's actually quite a timely issue because uh, the Chilean student, who, for in case anybody you know hasn't heard about it, this is a young woman who came to Ireland with a uh, permission to enroll in a English language course here. Uh, she had uh, she had checked in advance with the Department of Foreign Affairs with their consular service as to whether she'd be allowed to enter. She was assured in uh, absolutely unequivocal terms. I mean, honestly, as a lawyer, you dream of having evidence this strong. Unequivocal terms that she would be allowed to enter. Uh, and then, uh, of course, she was detained and put into Mountjoy for over a week. Turn my phone off there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, perfect. Thanks. Okay, great. Um, she had no access to a solicitor during this time. Uh, she, she, she had a right to access a solicitor, although she wasn't necessarily told this, but she had no legal aid to access a solicitor. So in order to get somebody there, basically, uh, you know, I had to do it pro bono. Um, now, obviously, because of the fact that the case was won, there will be, you know, some kind of agreement for the state to cover her fees. But if, you know, if she hadn't, if we hadn't been able to do that, then, you know, obviously I would have had to do that pro bono. And lawyers are aware of these things at the time that they get the call or they get the email saying there's somebody in immigration detention. Um, in a lot of cases, you're not actually going to ever be paid for that. And, you know, it, it, it does affect access to justice, obviously. Um, I had originally planned to talk about a couple of other things entirely. Um, the first thing was uh, legal aid in the immigration sphere, uh, because it is absolutely dire. Um, for the most part, there is no no legal aid for immigration cases at all. The only situation in which you are entitled to legal aid is if you're making an application for international protection. And the legal aid that's available there is very, very poor, and it's 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 so bad that it's really impossible to get proper representation uh, as a legal aid client in the for an international protection application. So I'm just gonna kind of set out exactly what goes into making an application just so that I can then um, show you why it's so bad. Um, if you're, you're, you're making an application for international, and this is all, just in case people don't know, international protection is like refugee status. So you know these are people that are at possibly at serious risk of torture, you know, murder, in their native countries. You come to Ireland, you make an app to make an application for international protection, you go to the international protection office. Okay, so you have to do this personally. Uh, you fill out a form, you do a short interview. All of this is done without any legal aid. 
whatsoever. You have no legal aid at this point. You're making an application. What you say is going to be recorded. It could be used against you in the course of your application. You have no legal aid for this process. It's only after you've made this, the application, once you have uh, those forms that say that you have applied, that you can then go to the legal aid board, say that I need legal aid. Um, you will be assigned a solicitor. Usually, it may be within the legal aid board itself, a solicitor within the legal aid board, or it may be farmed out to a private practitioner such as myself. Uh, at the point at which you get that solicitor, theoretically speaking, you should be able to do everything else after that with the aid of that solicitor. But in practice, because the rates are so poor, you probably are not going to get that much uh, advice at that stage. So you'll be given this, this questionnaire to fill out. It's like an 84-page questionnaire. This questionnaire will follow you around for the rest of your life in Ireland. So like I have had cases where somebody has been through the system, passed the system, got citizenship, and then a few years later, something happens which causes somebody injustice to go back, take a look at that questionnaire, and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, and, and the entire, your entire life can unravel at that point. You obviously 100% need legal advice to properly fill out that questionnaire, and you're not necessarily going to get it because of the fact that, as far as the legal aid board is concerned, you're entitled really only to advice at that stage, not to actual assistance with doing the full application. After this, you have an interview. Uh, the interview takes place at the International Protection Office. It can range from anywhere from an hour to four hours to the whole day. Sometimes people are called back for a second interview. Clearly, this is a, a case where you would want to have your solicitor present, but guess what? That's not covered either. So you will have to be in there the whole time on your own. You can't even pay your legal aid solicitor privately. You, you, know, you can't even say to them, look, okay, I know this isn't covered by legal aid, but I could raise the money. I just want somebody there with me. No, as your legal aid solicitor, I am not allowed to take that money from you and sit there with it. That would be a violation of my terms with the legal aid board. So you basically, either you have to go to that whole interview on your own, or I have to do it unpaid. And I have done it unpaid, you know, in cases where I felt, you know, that the person is extremely vulnerable and, and where there's a big likelihood of risk. But, you know, as a, as a lawyer, you never want your client to be talking to anybody who has the, you know, the a possibility of affecting their case without you being present. And, and it's just not possible to do this in most cases. Um, there's also recently been a case in the high court where the applicant's solicitors looked for uh, the notes that were taken of that interview and, and said that we should be entitled to see the transcript from that interview before a decision was made. And the high court said, no, you're not. The reason being that the, the applicant was entitled to have, you, you, like you could have gone and sit that, that there with them for the interview. But again, I, you know, if there's no legal aid for it, this is simply not going to happen. So you get your uh, you get your decision then, and then you can appeal the decision. You can appeal the international protection refuse if it's a refusal, and you will get legal aid for the notice of appeal, and you will get legal aid for the hearing. But again, the amount of legal aid that is given for that hearing is extremely low. You get the same amount. No matter how many, say the hearing has to be adjourned for whatever reasons, you turn up and the interpreter isn't there and you have to come back another day. It's exactly the same. The hearing lasts for a little while and then something happens, it can't continue, you have to come back another day. There's no additional legal aid for that. This is obviously something that, you know, it costs lawyers an awful lot in time uh, to be doing and the payment is 
very, very poor for it. And often also will want to have a barrister there to do it rather than have the solicitor do it, particularly if, you know, if it's a, a case that where there's, you know, complex issues that need particular advocacy skills. You have to split the payment that you get with the barrister. So that means you both get a very poor uh, amount. And just a, another thing happened just yesterday in the immigration list in the high court where um, a an application was made for it to bring to bring uh, leave to challenge a decision of the appeals tribunal, and an application was made for two counsel because the the junior counsel who had attended or the barrister who had attended at the uh, tribunal hearing was very very junior, and it was just felt you know having sought you know further legal advice from from more senior counsel it was felt that it would you know it'd be in the interest of justice for the applicant to have uh, a more experienced counsel you know, assist with the high court proceedings. And the judge was extremely reluctant to grant this because he said that, you know, he didn't want to encourage a situation where uh, less qualified counsel were going to the appeals tribunal. But of course, with the rates of, of legal aid that they're paying, you're not going to get very senior counsel to go to the appeals tribunal hearings. It's, it's a system that is built in to have, um, you know, devils and very newly qualified uh, barristers are, tend to be the ones who get these appeals tribunal hearings because they're, you know, the only ones that are willing to work for that, you know, low amount of pay. Um, okay, so all this happens, you get refused on second stage, and then you have no more right to any any further appeals after that, despite what despite what you may have heard from a lot of uh, opponents of the whole international protection system. It's it's not the case that you get appeal after appeal after appeal. You get one appeal, and that's it. What you can do at that stage is you can make further representations as to your right to permission to remain. But again, there is no additional legal aid for this at all. So it's entirely a matter for whoever granted the legal aid certificate, was granted the legal aid certificate in the first place, as to whether they're even going to be willing to, you know, to, to put in a lot of permissions at this stage. And unfortunately, a lot, of, um, a lot simply won't do it. So at that point, you're kind of just stuck with whatever you have. If you get a deportation order, you don't get legal aid to challenge the deportation order. You don't get legal aid to put in any additional sort of applications that may happen at that point, like say maybe in the interim you've married an Irish citizen or you've had an Irish citizen child. The way that the, the system is set up, you are supposed to make a separate application for that. You're not supposed to be allowed to include it in your, in your uh, general application for permission to remain, but there's no legal aid for that. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've kind of had to run through this very quickly because it is a little bit complex, but I hope that people can, you know, can kind of get a grasp of the sense of this, that the, the amount of legal aid that is available for these applications is so bad that it is simply impossible to do justice with the legal aid that's on offer. And what ends up happening is that either uh, people do a lot of work for free or some very good immigration lawyers just don't do legal aid work for uh, international protection applicants because of the fact that they just feel that they cannot, you know, conscientiously do it for what's being, what's on offer for it. And they will only do it for people who are actually have the money to pay the private fees. And then you also have some solicitors who are, you know, not really immigration lawyers at all, but there's legal aid certificate available for it. And, you know, they obviously think that they are doing the right thing. I'm not, you know, I, I don't mean to be critical of anybody who is trying to help people in international protection cases. But you know, if it isn't your area of expertise, you aren't necessarily going to be doing them a lot of help. 
Um, so this entire system is just, it, it's something that is absolutely crying out for, for reform. Um, I've probably gone over my time at this point, but um, I, I, I do, I do want to say a brief thing, that, another thing that Ailsh had mentioned earlier about um, the High Court immigration list. And this is a list where anything that falls under immigration is dealt with separately from other types of High Court cases. So this would include asylum applications, EU treaty rights applications, visas, citizenship. It, it all goes into a different list. It's dealt with by a different judge and different procedures apply. Um, there's a particular piece of legislation, Section 5 of the Illegal Immigrants Trafficking Act, which is particularly draconian. It only affects some cases in that list. It affects deportation orders, refugee cases, um, applications under Section 4 of the Immigration Act. But what this does is it imposes a time limit of four weeks to make an application for a judicial review after you get a decision. Now, four weeks may seem like a lot of time if you're, you know, if you don't know really the, the whole the way that it works. But, you know, this could require you um, to find a lawyer if you don't already have a lawyer, to find a new lawyer if you had a lawyer but they were covered by legal aid and, you know, you can't get legal aid for high court cases. Um, it may require, you need, may need that time to get documents translated. So four weeks really, it comes up very, very quickly. Um, the most egregious thing about Section 5 is that if your high court application is refused, if the judge rules against you, you can only appeal if that same judge says that you can appeal. Okay, you don't have the automatic right to appeal that you do in almost every other type of high court proceeding. Um, and every time I mention that, people's mouths fall open, they can't believe it, but it's true. Um, there is also in that list a series of practice directions, which are, um, they don't have the force of statute, but they are essentially, you have to abide by them or your case is not going to be dealt with. Um, they require extensive submissions to be made by the applicants, solicitors, essentially, the barristers. Essentially, when you are making your initial application, you have to practically write the state's case for them. You have to say, this is all the reasons why my application shouldn't succeed. And then try to override that. Say, this is, why, this is what they'll say as to why my application shouldn't succeed, and this is why they're wrong. You don't have to do that in any other situation. Um, you have to get them to swear, your, your, your client has to swear an affidavit which states their religion, okay? I think this is completely appalling. I think it's completely in breach of uh, European Convention on Human Rights. They have to actually say in their affidavit, I am a Muslim and this affidavit is being sworn on the Quran or you know whatever. And then you as the solicitor have to also swear an affidavit to say, you know, to my knowledge, this applicant is a Muslim and has, and I have been present and have seen them swear their, their affidavit on the Quran. It's, it's, it's quite insulting to us as practitioners to be told that, you know, that we're not doing our jobs properly by letting our, our clients, you know, not swear their affidavits properly. Um, there have been issues where, you know, for example, during, during the lockdown, I had a case where I had a client who was out in the west of the country, very, very vulnerable client, very ill. Uh, unable to, tra to travel to Dublin, and I couldn't actually get his application lodged because I couldn't be there in front of him to witness his affidavit, and I couldn't be there in front of him to say that I had seen him swear it on the Quran, and I couldn't find a solicitor in this part of the country 
who would go to all the trouble to do this for him. So his case was delayed for a few weeks, and it was actually a case where we were trying to um, get a, a very quick decision because he needed his status to, to access social welfare. So there's there's so much going on in that list, really, and it's just, it, it, it feels like it's one thing after another, and it feels like we're just constantly fighting this battle there just to try to get same type of access to justice for our clients that you know ought to be available and that would be available in the ordinary judicial review list in cases that don't involve immigrant clients. Um, it certainly feels like there's an, access, an, uh, an element of discrimination there. Um, and that's probably, I, I probably could go on for another hour about this, but I, I suppose I'll leave it at that. That's great. Thanks very much, Wendy, for those um, eye-opening remarks. So, first question, just for all of the panelists, is what are your thoughts on what the long-term effects of the pandemic will be to access to justice? Is it merely that it will narrow access, or does it present opportunities in the widening of access to justice at all? Uh, I can answer, give, give a form of an answer to that, if you like. Perfect. Um, I think, first of all, I think access to justice is linked to the economic uh, conditions uh, out there. And I, I think we haven't reached it yet, but we're about to fall over a cliff. So I, I do, unfortunately, I, I'd be very concerned about access to justice in, in a, a post-pandemic world um, once we, we get over the health issues and, and then we start looking at, at that. So I think there's that. I think apart from that, I, I would see huge potential um, um efficiencies having been developed in terms of, of virtual um, uh, virtual uh, courts and, and administration of the court service. I think it has been a time for consideration. I think that we need to look again at, at, at the court service and the priority of the court service. My own view is the court service, need, it needs to perhaps serve the litigant more than, than the system a, a little bit and, and we need to look at how that's done. So I, I think there's a lot of food for thought uh, in it, and I'm sure there's many other points that other speakers want to say, but there are two that jump out at me, I suppose. Thanks, Keith. Jane, I suppose in terms of criminal law, what are, what are your thoughts? I mean, as Keith said, there is the link with economics and law, and as we would see in, in the criminal courts, there's, there's links between housing and, and mental health and, and health generally. Um, and and the criminal courts. So I wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose one of the biggest things that we've seen throughout the uh, COVID-19, particularly in sentencing hearings and in some bail applications, is the um, lack of outside resources that some NGOs or drug rehabilitation centres or Peter McFerry might otherwise be have would have been in a position to provide. So those letters of referral, those support systems, those um, detox programs, they have unfortunately, I suppose, been suspended. And that has been in some way a, a bit of a barrier for people who otherwise would have had the best of intentions to better themselves or put themselves in a better possession for their, their bail apps or for their sentences. With regard to the general court system, um, I know from speaking with a number of 
guards and sergeants who I would prosecute with, and um, they didn't see a decline in crime during the pandemic, despite lockdown, and perhaps we thought we were um, all battening down the hatches. I think Keith has already indicated that there was a, a significant increase in domestic violence and some serious crimes, serious drug crimes, um, violent crimes, rape crimes, and sexual assaults. Um, most of those have gone off for directions to the DPP. So perhaps the media haven't quite realized that in fact, the statistics aren't necessarily reflecting the arrests at the moment, it's just a delayed matter. And um, so we expect some significant matters to come down, I'd say for trial towards the end of 2021, I think we're looking at now for, for new trial dates, 2021, 2022. And with that uh, disclosures crisis that you mentioned in the UK, is there any reason to be concerned that a, a similar systematic failure might occur here in Ireland? Absolutely. Um, I, think, I think it was best described to me um, by a, a judicial colleague who I won't name now that we're being recorded, but that we're effectively um, on cruise control, driving on an icy road with our eyes closed and the engine light blinking. Um, so we're really just waiting for, waiting for the shoe to drop. Um, it's foolish of us to think that we would somehow be immune uh, to these matters when England have fallen foul of them, America has, Australia had to a, a smaller degree, but they certainly had their own issues. Um, as trials become more complex, as social media features more heavily, um, mobile phone records, then generally financial records are coming more in the fore. And um, the amount of information that is disclosed can run to anywhere to 20 to 50 bankers boxes in some cases. And that data is generally given to practitioners on liquid files or remotely. And um, so it's very difficult for lawyers to be in a position to sift through everything and to be in a position to pick out relevant bits. And that's not um, a slight on Angarda Siakona. They're obliged to give over every piece of evidence that's either inculpatory or exculpatory but sometimes it's a deep dive and things are missed. And that also can go on the other side of um, the fence with the prosecution where they may miss disclosing something. And that really was the difficulty in England with uh, particular rape trials where mobile phone evidence had been a little bit buried and it didn't appear to be malafides. It was just an overwhelming amount of information and a misstep. But I think as all the other practitioners have said, um, and it's probably not the most uh, favourable topic to say funding is necessary, I think, across all of the court system. And unless you have the administrative staff and the support staff in the guards, the prosecution or in defence solicitors firms who have the time and the capacity to give the attention that's necessary in these matters, um, you're going to have a system that fails and it's not going to be popular. Nobody likes putting on the poor mouth or, mouth or saying anything, particularly in this climate, but we're going to see, I think, problems happening and we're not in a position to fix them at this point. So batten, the, batten down the hatches, folks. <laughs> and you, you would have seen in uh, England with the, the, the Lord Chancellor with the, not the abolition of the jury trial, but certainly that extension of non-jury courts. And I was reminded of uh, the line in um, the History Boys where there's, a uh, former history teacher becomes minister in it. And it was quoted by uh, Mr. Justice Hardiman in an in in article he wrote, which is that they're trying to abolish the jury and they say, you know, paradox is good, 
that you can say the loss of liberty is the price of freedom. And that is sort of the vibe that I'm, I'm getting, like certainly with, with the, the kind of words used by the Lord Chancellor there. And I know that Scotland was also considering that extension of non-jury courts. Should we be concerned about the jury, both in Ireland and internationally, is the jury trial an endangered species? Um, well, I know Mr. Jared Hogan had spoke somewhat on this through the Brexit remarks and that now we're the only common law system left in, in Europe and we really are the last ones fighting for this adversarial system and by proxy the jury system. Um, I'm a purist at heart. I can't imagine a world where the jury system where you're adjudicated by your peers and not by lofty lawyers with notions and privilege um, are judging other individuals in respective matters, and that extends to the judiciary as well. I think we'll be able to preserve ourselves, but I think it's inevitable that certain matters will be diluted. Probably the first things to go will be the jury civil trials, albeit I know that they're not used to great extent. Um, and then perhaps we may see more minor, um, low level, maybe serious matters start to be prosecuted on the cheap, so to speak, in the district court. And that'll start to be, I think, the dilution of the, the jury trial that maybe certain matters just won't go forward for jury trial. But I'm not sure we're quite at the point where we're going to abolish it. And um, it was a little bit rocky for a while where certain academics and very well respected academics were canvassing for smaller jury pools or the emergency times measures where we might forego them. Um, but thankfully, I think we've we've weathered that out and we're, we're good to go now. The good thing to say as well, just on that note is, um, jury trials are back in motion on a very low-scaled measure from next Monday, this coming Monday. Um, they're almost pilot trials to see if we can social distance properly, if we can have witnesses in court. Um, and they're significant trials. It's a rape and another murder, I believe, is going on in the other court. So at least we're trying and we're still holding on to, holding on to the jury system as best we can. Right, thanks, Jane. Um, Next question is just for Eilish. Um, something that touched off just there by, by Jane is, you know, the, the lawyer is obviously very privileged in, in society. Um, and there was, in the, the new programme for government, uh, not for lawyers, but for Angarda Shikona, there was a promise that they would try to um, increase the uh, diversity of Angarda Shikona, the different kinds of people. And I recently seen Javi Point talking on that and the issues with, uh, with travellers who have tried to enter Angarda Shikona but were facing difficulty. Uh, I've noted that um, FLAC has announced the launch of a new uh, dedicated traveller legal service. So could you just tell us about what obstacles uh, Mincare face in accessing justice and how FLAC is trying to address them? Sorry, you're, uh, you're on mute, Eilish. Uh, if I, sorry, Andrew, if I could just respond to, to your last question um, as well. I mean, you know, in FLAC's view, access to the courts is fundamental to access to justice. And we desperately need a functioning, accessible court system. And I think the weaknesses in the court system have been shown up by COVID. And uh, it, 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 the, the reality is it hasn't 
the court services haven't been funded and they have to be treated as fundamental to our, the administration of justice and to date they really haven't so uh, I, I you know while, while there may be you know some people are welcoming moves towards online courts we, we would welcome that in some respects but again that would have particular um, uh, problems for people who wouldn't uh, be necessarily have access to online facilities and people with particular vulnerabilities it might suit as well so it goes back it is a question of resources and how the court services need to be resourced and resourced very quickly um, but uh, it, going back to your question we're delighted that Christopher McCann has been appointed as a solicitor in our new dedicated traveller legal services which has been funded by the um, Community Foundation of Ireland and uh, the traveller community are uh, suffered the greatest discrimination in Ireland there was a ESRI report in 2017 which showed that up and FLAC for some time has been providing representation in a small number of cases but they experience huge barriers in terms of access to justice I mentioned earlier there's no legal aid for discrimination claims and there's a perception that there's no legal aid for housing claims and housing and discrimination to date have been the issues that Black have had to try and address so we're delighted that we're having this dedicated uh, service it's going it there's just one solicitor employed so there's limited resources but he will be trying to bring cases that will have an impact beyond the individual and there's so many issues it's been necessary we have a steering group made up of traveler NGOs who have to agree the criteria in terms of the cases that will be taken and We'll be focusing on issues like access to accommodation, the failure to implement traveller accommodation programmes, uh, the failure of local authorities to draw down the funding that's there to provide accommodation. Uh, we'll also be looking at difficulties travellers may have in being designated as homeless and therefore not entitled to emergency accommodation. And we'll also be looking at issues such as discriminatory practices. There's been complaints about how travellers in schools or some travellers may be required to have a reduced timetable. So we'll also be looking hopefully at the criminal trespass legislation, which effectively criminalises the way of life of travellers. So there's loads and loads of issues. Um, it, uh, we, I can see that there's a danger we may be overwhelmed, but I'm, I'm hoping we, we won't and that we will make efficient use of the resources that we're getting and we're really happy to be getting that resource and um, we have a question here which is that the uh, the new government in the program for government promised to make a policy for undocumented within 18 months my question is whether there is any updates in that regard and who could be beneficiaries of this policy uh, the short answer to your first question is no there's no updates um, we, I, I get asked this question all the time and literally have no idea, um, have absolutely no idea what it's going to look like, who's going to be able to benefit. Um, it, it's all just a matter of seeing, uh, seeing what happens. Um, if I could just just say something as well in the last question about the, the what, COVID opportunities. Um, one thing that I had kind of hoped would happen as a result of all of this would be that it, there might be more uh, ability to do e-filing in the courts. Uh, that has not happened at all. In fact, it's become more difficult to do any filing, uh, at least for the high court. Um, it's, it's, it's actually become a, a very serious problem uh, just trying to get the papers filed in the high court these days. So that's also having a big impact on access to justice. 
Um, also, Wendy, just last September, um, the Ombudsman called for his um, remit to be extended to include complaints about the asylum process itself. Do you think that that has any tangible benefit uh, or would have any tangible benefit uh, for asylum seekers? Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's always, always the more, <laughs> the more the Ombudsman can cover, uh, the, the better. I and mean, we, we've certainly seen uh, other situations in which the Ombudsman's involvement in matters has had a real intangible difference. And just in my own experience as a lawyer would be around the Magdalene Laundry cases where, you know, basically the, the Ombudsman was responsible for uh, getting a whole cohort of women admitted into the redress scheme who would have been excluded otherwise. Um, the Ombudsman does have limited powers, um, you know, the power only of recommendation rather than, you know, you can't force uh, government bodies to do anything, but the, you know, there, there certainly is a, a strong amount of influence there. So yeah, I would absolutely welcome that. And just another question, because you're a um, qualified attorney in the US, I'd really like to hear your views of the uh, pro proposition for a review of the, maybe a, a public defender system in Ireland. What, what would be oh, your... I, I'm with Jane on this. It's a complete disaster. Absolutely, absolute disaster. Um, don't even go there. It's it, the, the whole system in the U.S. is entirely underfunded. There's no reason to think that it would be any different here. Um, you have a situation where, it, you know, if you look at the statistics, and I haven't seen any recent statistics, but I know, you know, I, I doubt they've changed that much from the last time I did see them. If you look at the statistics of people who are on death row in the U.S., you know, don't apart from race and the other things that you might expect to see, the, the overwhelming thing that they have in common, people on death row are people who could not afford their own lawyer and had to go for a public defender. It's just the, the gulf in, in the, you know, the quality of, of legal assistance that you get there is huge, and I just wouldn't want to see that come in here at all. At least here, like most, the legal aid criminal lawyers are the people who are down there every day. They are the experts. You know, if I was facing a criminal trial, I would want a criminal legal aid lawyer because I would know that they were there all the time and they would know what they were doing. That's not, you know, I, I don't, I don't think you're going to be getting a better quality of of legal advice by bringing up public defender system at all. Thanks, Wendy. Um, Keith, with the announcement of you know the Hammond Lane project, obviously that's to be welcomed if that is carried through. Just could you give us some information as to the facilities uh, for family law courts outside Dublin and what's what's that like and how could those facilities be improved and I suppose part of that will be uh, maybe a discussion of whether or not those specialist courts actually are brought about. Um, the courts outside Dublin uh, operate on a kind of uh, one big court in the county town in, in most cases so you have a big courthouse we'll say in Galway City uh, which would serve most of Galway and where the circuit court would sit. And if the high court was down there, it might sit there and there would also be a district court usually attached somewhere around. Um, that's very similar, we'll say, in Nace. So what you have is one very impressive, huge courthouse with probably two courts and the combined court offices. And uh, you currently, again, I suppose family law is done mainly in the circuit court for divorce and separation or marital cases, uh, in the high court for um, uh, child abduction and big money divorces, and then in the district court for all non-marital child-related matters and childcare cases. Uh, so the district court would sit um, uh, most days uh, generally, 
um, but it would only do family law on certain days and certain days would be childcare in the district. Uh, so um, it, depending on the district court, you may have other lists going on in between before and afterwards. Uh, so you could have a criminal, maybe a criminal list in the afternoon and they, it could be technically separate from the family law case cases, but in actual fact, they all get jumbled in together because cases overrun. And there's no privacy whatsoever outside Dublin. So if, if you're in an in-camera matter, it doesn't really matter because people will see you down there uh, hanging around the court precincts. Um, and it's very easy, even in, in NACE, which is the one I suppose outside Dublin I'd be most familiar with, it's quite easy to see who's in the court just by driving down the street or walking past the courthouse because people are in or out. Uh, and it's even worse in COVID-19, unfortunately, because people are being forced in, in Dublin in particular to stand outside the physical uh, courthouses and particularly the circuit court. Uh, so um, it, it, I suppose it's fairly haphazard. It'll depend on the local judge for the district courts. Uh, you kind of follow the judge around. So if, if you miss them, you may have to catch them if they're in another district court, because as you know, district court judges on particular districts may, for example, the district court judge in Mayo would maybe travel around uh, Castlebar, Ballina, a number of, of different district courts. They just wouldn't have one, one place where they'd sit. So outside Dublin, you have, a, we'll say, bigger counties like Galway, Kerry, Cork, all of those, you'd have a district court judge who would travel around a, a number of venues and would have particular days. So some days might be criminal, some might be civil, and some might be family, or they may all be jumbled in together in their list, depending on how the judge uh, tries to do it. So one of the issues is that the president of the district court has no control whatsoever over the district court judges. So the, the president can tell the district court or ask the district court judge to do things in a certain way, but if they don't do them that way, there's zero recourse. Um, the district court judge is appointed to a district. Uh, uh, certainly the, the circuit court judge was appointed to districts, I think, by the government. It's the whole issue about the control of the presidents of the jurisdictions. So there needs to be more control by um, the president of the circuit and the district, and to a lesser degree, the high court on the judges, so that there can be a uniform approach. So the, the huge difficulty, I suppose, isn't as much the physical infrastructure as the huge lack of any kind of consistency in family law. Family law isn't in the newspaper, so different judges can't even see, like personal injuries, what, what the level of damages for certain awards are. It's, it's rarely reported. It's, it's extremely rare to see any report of a family law case um, outside the high court. And again, they're only big money cases and they don't really apply to circuit or district court. So I think the lack of consistency is one of the biggest problems. Uh, I think a reform of the court structures to have specialist courts is good in some way, but in other ways, you're going to lose the local justice. And I mean, particularly if you have a barring order, we'll say, and you're in um, Kilkelly or Ballyhollis and Mayo and your nearest district court, even now is probably Castlebar, which is a bit away. If that moves probably as it's likely to do, I suspect under the new system to Sligo or to Galway, you're talking, you're talking a, a, a much greater physical journey. And I think during COVID, you know, ability, it's not just the physical journey, it's the rest of your life that you have to organise to permit you to leave whatever you need to leave at nine o'clock. And that's fine, we'll say, if, if it's children and the schools are on. But again, if you're working or, or other things. So there's a whole there's a whole infrastructure and a way we do courts that suits the judges and suits the judiciary and, and to a lesser degree, but still suits the lawyers and the callovers and all of that. And I think we may have to look at how we do we do justice differently. And just touching on the access to, to, to the legal professions point, one of the innovations the Law Society has brought in as a result of the Legal Services Regulatory Authority pressures 
but as a result of responding to them is that there's now um, evening courses for uh, trainee solicitors so that you can attend Blackhall at night. I, I personally was a huge fan of the BL course that King's Inn ran when it started at half four because it brought a whole different cadre of people. Um, maybe not as diverse as it should be, but it certainly opened it up a little bit and it's a good first step. I think we may need to look at maybe having a domestic violence court sitting later in the evening or at different times. I mean, half 10 to come into the centre of Dublin, I'm not sure. And I think the other difficulty is transport outside Dublin to get to the courts. However bad it is in Dublin, and it's not great, it is much worse outside Dublin to try and secure transport. And again, these are the most vulnerable people who don't have access to a car. Or you may have a family, because I'm talking about family law. You have one family car, I've heard many instances of many cases about who gets to use the family car and the control over it, uh, unfortunately, uh, which leads me to believe that the person who might need the, to, to get the barring order, to get the relief from the court, isn't the person who has access to the keys to the car. They may There may be a car, but they're not allowed to use it. You know, taxis in local areas, really, people know each other's business and stuff. It's It's, it's actually... It shouldn't be a problem for access to justice, but I, I think it is a problem. So I, I think it is problematic, but at least there will be some proposal to resolve it. And I think we all need to get in their flack and the law society and, and family lawyers and stakeholders like one family and Troar and say, look, you're proposing it this way. These are the problems, but let's come up with solutions. And I think we can't afford to let the legal, the, the family, current family law system continue as it is because it isn't it isn't working for anyone at the minute i don't think so i i, I again i don't want to make it worse but i think we we're going to have an opportunity to have a, a good policy debate on what should happen but unfortunately we're probably doing it at the worst possible time because i i i cannot see a worse time in terms of allocation of resources in the longer term to salaries of people in in, in courts uh to uh to the maintaining of courts and to the creation of additional resources. What we're talking about with any new system is we need additional resources. We need more mediators. We need more uh, Section 47 assessors. We need more legal aid. And there is, uh, even in the statement, I think, that was made by the court service uh, at the recent webinar, th there's a commitment to change, but not to more resources, which, in my view, is you can't do one with the, at the other. And as a mediator, with that commitment to change in the programme for government to uh, encourage mediation, what do you think can be done in tangible steps to encourage mediation? Well, first of all, there isn't a mediation council set up. The government have resiled from even setting that up. That's a kind of a necessary prerequisite to mediation be taken in any way seriously. That means that if there's a complaint against a mediator, there's an independent body who can deal with the complaint. So that's a really fundamental process issue that the government has backed out of. What they've said instead is that you can set up a limited company between the various mediation bodies and that mediation uh, body can then take on the uh, regulation. Um, I, it seems daft to me. My, my view is that even a regulator could be self-funding based on the um, registration fee and, and there's a way around that. So that that's, if you like, a process mediation argument. I, I won't go any further, but that in itself is, 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 is an obstacle, unfortunately. You then secondly have um, more information needs to be given out about mediation. There needs to be uh, more... Um, I suppose more involvement by by the legal profession and by the litigants in mediation where possible. I think there has been an increase in mediation since the Act came in, and um, there's now a much greater duty on uh, family law solicitors to 
provide information and they have to swear a statutory declaration that they've done so, which again, it's an offence to, um, to um, uh, not be 100% correct in those statutory declarations. So there's a much higher bar at the minute. And I do think there's a recognition in family lawyers in the past two or three years that mediation does work. It is an alternative. But I suppose family lawyers deal with the, the one or two percent of the extremely acute cases where it's gone really far. And it's a bit like maybe if someone's unwell, if, if, if you don't get things sorted right until the end, you know, there has to be a fairly radical intervention. And that's quite often what happens. So I, I wouldn't rule out the, um, the difficulties in cases that come to court that, that um, they're incredibly polarised uh, by the time they even get to lawyers. And in, in a huge number of cases that I'm seeing at the minute, which are the more difficult end of them, people have been through mediation. In some cases, it's worked for something, but not for others. And so I think it's, we're going to see there's maybe a kind of suite of options, one of which mediation may resolve part, but not all. It may resolve all of it. The court may resolve one or, or part of it, but mediation could do something else. ADR might do some more, and collaborative law might do another, another element. I'm involved with the Family Lawyers Association in looking at arbitration as a potential um, means of resolving discrete issues within um, family law cases. And the advantage of arbitration is that you, you have a mediator is not involved in fairness. They, they're not going to decide what's fair or just in the circumstances. They simply want to get an agreement. So there's no element of, of justice in it, whereas an arbitrator has a different role and they're much more directive which sometimes is what people want. They say, well, look, I've come to the end of my tether. I, we can't agree. We want a solution imposed on us now. Again, that is not the, the starting point. That's really the end point that you, that you get to, and that's when everything else is run out. But I, I do think we have to look at arbitration as a potential way of resolving uh, things outside court as well. And I think the COVID-19 thing has taught us that if we can resolve cases, now is the time to do, do it because the court space is not available. But notwithstanding that, there's still a huge percentage of my cases and most family lawyer cases where we've said to people, we won't settle it for another six months or a year unless you get together. No. So that's with the best will in the world trying to do it. So I, I think we've, we've realised there are a rump of cases that are just exceptionally difficult to deal with without a judge who's going or a third party. Great. Thanks, Keith. Um, maybe just for Eilish as well, I'd be interested to hear your views and views within FLAC on mediation and the role of mediation, um, if you could. Sorry, I think you're uh, still muted. We would have made a submission to the Workplace Relations Commission because they issued a uh, discussion document on their response to COVID-19 and uh, what was very clear was that priority was going to be given to mediation and that people who had been offered mediation uh, would be, and who had refused it, would be re-offered it. And I have to say, we had some concerns about that because we believed in terms of the Workplace Relations Commission that its primary function was to adjudicate on, on disputes, on employment claims or equality claims, and that to keep presenting mediation as an offer uh, we didn't feel was 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 kind of recognizing that mediation is supposed to be a voluntary process and uh, that if it isn't voluntary it's it's not it's not going to work so uh, I suppose we have some some concerns that there it, there is an overemphasis on mediation we we believe and we we argued to the WRC that what really what they should be trying to do was to try and have 
hearings at, at social distancing as soon as possible and that we failed to see how mediation uh, of straightforward claims how if it was such a straightforward claim well then it shouldn't take up that much resources from the workplace commission so i suppose we we would always have concerns as keith was saying it's the job of the mediator to reach a solution to help the parties reach a solution and very often the dominant party might uh, might be might remain the dominant party in terms of the solution that's reached and uh, in in a lot of instances if there is a straightforward claim we would prefer that that would be adjudicated on and, and adjudicated on quickly perfect thank you very much and um, the next question is for wendy i remember seeing I think maybe back in 2015, a panel in, in Buzzwells that you were sitting on with, um, among others, Kate McGrew of the Sex Workers Alliance, and you were discussing uh, oh. the prostitution and what then became the, the 2017 Act. That's now undergoing, uh, as was contained in the Act, a three-year review. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the performance of that Act and also your thoughts on, on that review, because I understand that it, it is accepting submissions yeah. uh, all different kinds of groups yeah um the review is basically just getting underway and they said that they they will accept submissions um from everybody which is good um as far as i'm concerned the law has done exactly what we said it would do which is uh absolutely nothing to uh reduce the number of people involved in sex work um what it or the number of people uh trafficked uh, what it has done instead is created a much more dangerous uh, environment for people involved in sex work. Um, it's made sex workers have, uh, it's it's absolutely devastated relationships with Gardaí, not that they were great to begin with, but uh, they're, they're far worse now. Um, it has created a situation where uh, clients essentially have uh, a greater balance of power because of the fact that they can you know they feel that they can they're the ones assuming the risk now so they feel that they have uh, they can they can insist uh they can demand greater service you know more services than they would have been given otherwise uh they can insist that women work alone uh when they might not have might not might prefer not to work alone um there's absolutely no evidence in any jurisdiction where this has been brought in that it has done anything other than harm conditions for people in the sex industry. And, I, I, you know, Ireland is, I'm not at all surprised that Ireland is the same. Great, thanks for your thoughts. So um, I'd like just to invite all uh, attendees, uh, thank you all for um, tuning in. And you'll all automatically receive, um, at the end of this, a, a post-webinar survey so I'd encourage you all to complete that if you could. Thank you all very much. And a special thank you uh, to Eilish, or to Eilish, uh, Keith, Wendy and Jane. Uh, thanks very much for all of your um, very insightful remarks. And just for everyone watching, a, a full report will appear uh, on this webinar in uh, the Irish Legal News newsletter uh, this Friday. Thank you all for attending.